I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Paul LeBlanc, the president of Southern New Hampshire University in Manchester, New Hampshire. Now, for most of my Texas-based listeners, I suspect you have never heard of Dr. LeBlanc or of Southern New Hampshire University. That's okay. I'm prepared to convince you of his ingenuity and the innovative leadership the SNHU community demonstrates. As the value proposition of traditional four-year college experiences is increasingly challenged, as today's complex and rapidly changing economy requires workers to pivot their skills quickly, and as the world moves increasingly to personalization, except ironically in most educational environments, Dr. LeBlanc and his team have developed a leading model at SNHU in response to these changing realities. In just 15 years, SNHU has gone from a middling regional four-year university servicing 2,800 students to today having 135,000 students, 97% of them in the online space on its enrollment logs. They have also become a leader in successfully incorporating competency-based learning, which allows learners to move when they have demonstrated mastery rather than being held hostage to a prescribed and standardized pace. As parish listeners know, we are eagerly incorporating elements of competency-based learning, or CBE, into our model here at Parish. In this episode, Dr. LeBlanc and I explore his journey to become the innovator he is now seen to be, how, as a leader, he is managing the balance between personalized learning experiences and fostering a culture of belonging for students and employees and other interesting tidbits. I'm sure you will find this discussion to be stimulating. President Paul LeBlanc, Southern New Hampshire University, uh, welcome to the From My Angle podcast. We're awfully glad to have you. Pleasure to be here, Dave. This is an outstanding opportunity for me to speak to uh, one of the higher education leaders who uh, my listeners know I follow with uh, closeness and and great acuity as I uh, seek to see uh, what the innovative leaders across the country are doing. So I'm awfully thrilled to have Dr. LeBlanc with me today. So... This story of Southern New Hampshire University is a remarkable one. You got there in 2003. The university served uh, about 2,800 students, had no endowment, and today is America's biggest university, over a, a billion-dollar budget. 97% of your students are online. You have an aspiration by 2025 to serve 300,000 students, about twice what you're serving now. So tell us this story a little bit and just by way of background whether a couple other points of interest that we should know about Southern New Hampshire University sure Um, well you know it's a it's really a bigger story of getting very very focused on students and putting students first and I know it that sounds rather cliche but if you start to think really hard about who you're serving you start to get into pretty pretty deep into the weeds about everything from your processes, your policies, your operating hours, how you structure your terms. So what we realized is that we had this, you know, 2003, we had this nice little online program with about 18 people, you know, staff working it. They were doing a good job, um, but we were still thinking, I think, in many ways uh, about online learning as sort of taking the campus experience and kind of putting it into virtual space. In reality, what we discovered and we thought hard about it is that there's a very big difference. Our online learners were, you know, on average 35 years old. 
They have full-time jobs, they have a couple of kids. They're kind of stuck. They're going to go back and do this hard thing. So the things we used to ask them to do, like, you know, 80% of them have credits from someplace else. We used to ask them to get their transcripts, their official transcripts, so we could see how many credits we'd accept. It's like, if I'm, if I'm sort of picking up my kids after school and it's 4.30 and what's a registrar again and how do I find them and I got to have a $10 bank check? Like, so we just made it real easy, said, look, you just give us permission, we'll chase that down, we'll even pay the $10, right? So that's not a very sort of sexy thing, mm-hmm. but it makes a real difference if you're a working adult. And we just get really, really, really focused on what Clay Christensen calls the jobs to be done. Mm-hmm. For an 18-year-old, the job to be done is quite often to live on campus in an intentional community, develop their values, their, their sense of calling, their academic passions. It's also a place to fall in love and study abroad and reinvent yourself. Mm-hmm. My 35-year-olds, they, they do not need more coming of age. They know what they're about. Right. right. And for them, it's actually give it to me that's convenient because this is the third priority in my life. College student can be, you know, that can be their first priority. For working adults, family, job, now education is number three. Give it to me in a convenient way. Give it to me in a way that I can afford because I'm sort of stuck. I'm not making enough money now to take care of my family. That's why I've come back to school. Give it to me, uh, you know, get me to the completion line faster. Get me to the finish line faster because I'm feeling urgency. It's why I'm coming back. So very different drivers. And when you get really focused on those drivers, you think differently. So we, you know, we set out to, to really and spent the, the the non-very sexy part of the story is before we ever started trying to build a national footprint is we spent years getting all of our business processes revamped, our systems, under the hood stuff. It's not very interesting to many people and it's not a great burst of creativity. It's just roll up your sleeves and do the hard work. When we felt we were ready and the recession hit and we needed to sort of start to grow faster in new ways, is when we did our first test marketing and really went to cities where we had no, no, no brand recognition, Milwaukee, Oklahoma City, Raleigh-Durham. And what we found was that what we were describing was really appealing to adults. And we, um, we spent a little bit of money to do that and just started to, the flywheel started to turn. Um, and we have built ever since. So we're not quite at a billion, but it's 135,000 college-age learners. And then also acquired a not-for-profit called LRNG, and they serve another 50,000 opportunity youth. So we're pretty excited. What should you know about us that you might not know already um, is that we're doing work in refugee camps in five countries, soon to expand to seven, with the most ambitious attempt to bring full American degree programs to the most underserved population in the world. With 71 million refugees, 1% of them have access to higher ed. Yeah, I'm an ardent follower of yours on Twitter and saw you handing out diplomas uh, this, this summer over in Africa. And so I know you've taken the diploma handing out uh, to, to a global level. Yeah, and it's, uh, I don't know if there's anything more exhilarating than a, a ceremony in a, you know, this Lake a refugee camp, 40,000 refugees in literally the poorest country in the world, and yet full of hope and jubilation and possibility that came with getting that degree. Yeah, it's really amazing. And, and I think uh, the listeners who follow our podcast now here entering its third, third season know that um, for, for the Paris story is a story of innovation and, and of hope and of possibility and of curiosity and a, a poking at model. And, and I think uh, whether they're educators who are listening or, or simply innovators in their own uh, sector, that's why it's interesting to hear you talk, right? You're talking about human-centered design, starting where the customer is. You're talking about testing and iterating. You're talking about being uh, audacious and ambitious enough to, to get to the market first, as you all did. And now others 
uh, have followed uh, at Purdue and Arizona State, et cetera, who are really pushing to get out uh, and redefine what higher education looks like, just as Parrish is really trying to think about what should the pre-K through 12 experience be like. So this year, I'm talking a lot about uh, this, this theme of belonging and, and identity and how one develops their identity, then define the community to which they have fixed themselves or belong. So I'm wondering about your, your, your sort of story as an innovator uh, and that's part of your identity. It's part of Southern New Hampshire University's uh, uh, identity as an institution. What in your what in your personal and professional history, or uh, were some of the things that led you to challenge and and uh, and, and and question where you might go with the with the status quo? I know, for example, when you were at Marlboro College as president before you came to Southern New Hampshire, they the board of trustees there was tepid about moving into the online space. And so you had to go find the right soil in which to plant your innovator's seed. So tell me a little bit about where you trace your innovator spirit to. Yeah, let us first talk about that sense of community and belonging because you really struck on something that's critical to our thinking. And I think really uh, at the source of our success with our adult learners very much influenced by a sociologist at um, Brown University named Greg Elliott. He was my daughter's mentor, actually, but he sort of articulates well what I've been interested in for a long time. Um, and that's, he writes about the idea of mattering. That in the end, we have an existential need to matter, right? We want, it's not about us. You know, if it's our self-satisfaction, it only matters to us. It means mattering in a bigger sense. And he did his early work, Greg did his early work studying gangs in inner cities where if you went home to you know, a broken household where there was no food and you, maybe you were the one that had to make sure your little siblings ate breakfast the next morning and got them off to school, uh, and then you went to a school that was broken down and there was just not a lot of care and attention, and the whole world around you looks like, really, you don't matter very much. There's no signal that you matter to anybody. Gangs make a lot of sense because all of a sudden you matter to them, and part of mattering is expectation setting. It's not just we care about you. It's that we have expectations of you. You matter to us in, in, in the fullest sense of that term. And I go all the way back to uh, uh, an earlier sociologist when I was an undergrad, France Fanon, who was an Algerian sociologist who was writing about the Algerian uprising against France. And he, uh, he wrote a book called The Wretched of the Earth. And he writes about when you give people no hope and no sense that they matter, they finally in the end resort to violence because it's a way of asserting that they, that they exist, that they are there. Richard Wright does this in Native Son, which is a book about racism in America. And, and at the end of The Stranger, Camus says, if you remember, the murder is says about, and, and Bigger Thomas in Native Son says the same thing, essentially, I hope when they execute me, there will be crowds there howling for my demise. Mm. Why? Because at least you knew you mattered to wow. someone. Even hate is a form of mattering. So when we think about our students, if you're an adult learner, it's really easy to feel isolated and alone, right? It's 10 o'clock at night, the kids are tucked in, your husband's watching your favorite TV show in the next room, you can hear him laughing, you kind of wish you were there, but instead you're struggling over the statistics course or the paper you have to write, and you got all the stuff spread out on the dining room table. Our advisors who are checking on you, who are encouraging you, who right? What's the thing that they're doing? They're making you feel like it matters to someone that you're persisting, that you're fighting through this. So mattering makes a, it really is really important to us. And look at we see this on our traditional campus. You know, we do have a traditional campus with four thousand students. What is a campus but an intentional community? where we work really hard to make feel, students feel like they belong. So I think that sense of rootedness and community and that sense of belonging and the sense that you matter 
it's really at the heart of why we, you know, that's, that's the human experience right there. No question. I, you know, and I will uh, be speaking a lot about that over the course of the year. We actually run to or are driven to belong to a place. Before we go back to the innovator question, because this is an interesting uh, uh, point that you're making, how, do you, how are you all um, uh, ma- modulating and managing the belonging of the face-to-face campus at Southern New Hampshire University and then the experience of those in College for America, which is, is the uh, entity which is uh, really driving Southern New Hampshire's presence uh, in, in the broader population of adult learners that you describe. Are they two separate things? Does it matter that you're doing both? Do they it's, have a really, it's, a great, it's a great and timely question today because, A, it's actually global campuses are a big online operation. College for America is our competency-based program. That's a part of that. And then there's university college on the main campus. And the conversation, so we do treat them separately and differently because they're very different audiences and they need very different things from us. Though interestingly, in terms of the academic experience, what we are finding is that students are finding their own hybrid ways of combining things and weaving things together. So we have campus students who are taking online courses from Global Campus. We have adults who are doing residencies on the low, you know, low uh, <laughs> programs on the campus. So we're actually having a conversation just last week with the board about, should we stop this sort of siloing and just think about, hey, this is SNHU. We'll curate your learning any way you want it. You want yeah, some you want online, you want some competencies. Like that's the dream, right? Is to give people a personalized, curated learning model that works best for them. So the comp the campus based um, program does not use a full competency based model per se, but there are students that are choosing now to opt into that as College for America offers it. Yeah, and we're actually it's going through a multi year process right now to map competencies to every form of learning we provide so that at some point we'll be able to weave things together in really new and interesting ways. That sounds familiar to those uh, here in the parish environment who've been watching us do that for the last uh, five years or so. And we'll circle back to Compsy based in a minute. You've already given us some exposure to your background as an English uh, professor with uh, your explanation of belonging connection to the uh, sociologists. But let's let's go back and also revisit your your pathway to become an innovator. Uh, so where do you where do you plant uh, some of those uh, most fundamental seeds? Like where do you identify them in your uh, personal or professional history? Sure. Um, so for me, when I was a graduate student at the University of Massachusetts, and I was going to be an English major, I was an English major. I was working my doctorate, and I was looking at composition and rhetoric. And at the time, um, UMass had donated to it a whole room full of personal computers, and it was to the writing program. And I was a TA, so I was teaching writing courses. And the full-time faculty, because they had tenure, could say, not us. We're not touching those damn things. Leave us alone. So who did they give them to? They said to the TAs, okay, you guys figure it out. So I started using technology with my freshmen. <clears throat> struck. I thought it was amazing what was happening. They were transformed for all kinds of reasons, right? And some of it was really very technical, like, hey, there's no penalty when you ask someone to revise. They don't have to retype a paper. You just cut and paste, right? Like, this is a pretty cool thing. And it sounds antiquated now to your young listeners, but back in the day, this was like, I mean, I think the whole world is separated between those who type their dissertations and those who did them on a word processor. It was a fundamentally different experience. So, So in that class, I really started to play with the technology and became very intrigued by the way the technology fundamentally changes the way we work and the way we think. So if you think about it, writing, the act of writing is itself a technology, right? We're not born learning, but knowing how to write. 
in pre, uh, pre-literate cultures, what was the most important cognitive skill you could possess? Memorization, because you literally could only know what you could remember. After we became, uh, after you sort of moved through writing, Walter Ong, a famous Jesuit priest, wrote about this. Um, all of a sudden, memorization falls way down the list of things that were important. Now it was indexing. It was more important to know, you know, how do you find what, what you need? Um, and today, as we move into a world of AI, more information that you can possibly keep your arms around, we're going to get really comfortable with the, AI, with the idea of having algorithmic coworkers this technology that will help us navigate a more complex world with way more than we can process. So technology also has this huge impact psychologically, cognitively, and sociologically. And I really got interested in those questions. And I'm a guy who was, you know, immigrant, first generation. Um, education changed my life in ways that are profound to me. And what, I, what I've been seeing for a long time is this erosion of that American dream. We used to be the place to be if you were born poor, because it didn't matter, right? It didn't matter if you were born poor. You weren't condemned by your station life. Today, we're the 17th in the world in terms of... It's better to be born a poor kid in Canada, where we immigrated from, or France, or Germany, any number of places. Um, And for the first time, I think, higher education is being seen as part of the problem, not part of the solution, which breaks my heart. Right. We think of innovation, when you go back to your question... We're innovating because the higher ed system that worked so well for so long is now failing the country. We've got to figure out what a higher ed system looks like for this century. It's built for the last century. Um, and, and too many people are falling behind. Yeah, it's been become tiered. You followed that early exposure to technology actually with some time at book, a book publishing company with online textbooks, which had to be, again, in those very nascent days, as you were talking about, of, of technology coming, coming on board. When you became a college administrator for the first time, uh, how, did, how did you manifest these uh, innovative instincts? I know you got connected with Clay Christensen, who you uh, referenced, who's really talked about disruptive innovation, and I know he was uh, vital to your development, so maybe it was that personal interface. Were there other experiences as, a, as an education leader that began to hone your skills as an innovator, or at least help them emerge? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Clay certainly is a dear, dear friend. I've known him since graduate school days, and he um, he was on my board for nine years as trustee emeritus, and we still talk a lot. And, his thinking about disruptive innovation, jobs to be done, research, all of those things are very influential for me. I think another was um, doing that stint at Hood Mifflin Publishing where we weren't actually doing electronic textbooks. I was actually building new tools for them. And it was a really interesting opportunity because in 1992, the Wall Street Journal published an editorial that basically said the old mainline publishers are dinosaurs and they're going to die in the face of new media. And they all rushed to create new media divisions. And I actually had an offer. Hood Mifflin knew of my research at the time and my work. And they gave me uh, an offer I couldn't refuse, which they said, if you take a leave of absence from Springfield College, where I was a faculty member at the time, we'll um, you know, go anywhere you want, anywhere in the country for the next nine months, hire a couple of bright young people to do this work with you. And then in nine months, come back and tell us how we should think about the future of our industry. That's a great invitation. We crisscrossed the country. We were at IBM and Intel and Apple, at Maricopa Community College, at Miami Dade, at Michigan, at Dartmouth. And we came back at the end of those nine months and we said, we know you're in the world of producing content. We actually think content's going to get more ubiquitous and more free. We think your business model is going to go away in some ways. 
And then what you really ought to do is think about building tools, tools for navigating a world where information explodes. And that's what we built. I stayed on for two more years, and that's what we started to build. So we built a program a product at the time called Common Space, which was kind of an early version of, of how Google Docs works. And it was really a great experience. I learned a lot. What but year was that? That sense of being able, like, you know, those grad school days of working with those first computers just took, you know, all of a sudden it went on steroids with that experience of those three years. And then... So that's what, 1970s, 80s? No, no, this would be those Hood Mifflin years were 1993 to 96. Okay, later, yep. Yep, so if you remember, um, in 93, we were still only just talking about the first real email systems. People were using Lotus Notes. That was the hot email system. And the first web browsers were coming out, so we were using Mosaic. Now I'm really dating myself, but... But this was all new stuff to everybody. It's remarkable how fast the impact of technology. Um, yeah, it really, really has gone. And that's, that, is, that is amazing. So that innovator spirit, like what I'm hearing you talk about is uh, this, this, this notion of a kind of consistent and constant curiosity, you know, this, this sense of how something can be improved. That, so that's this hopeful element, right, that goes along yeah. with the curiosity. You ask a question. Then you envision a possibility for how it might work better, and then you've got this uh, sort of courageous element enough to go out and test and and, and experiment, uh, and then ultimately you've got to have this skill set. I suspect to do what you've done at Southern New Hampshire, which is to execute at scale, right? Like so you've taken you know some interesting yeah. queries about technology, and now through the work of you and your team, have just over you know a couple of decades been able to to really polish the systems and infrastructure you you uh, you referenced earlier so those are really good lessons for an innovator regardless of sector and some of the skill sets it seems you either had naturally or that you've honed uh, pretty conscientiously over time well i do think there's a real difference today between the sort of that innovative playfulness i actually like play even more than courage because i think it's curiosity and play you know i was just recently and i like they haven't lost that i was in San Francisco recently, I went to Unity, which, you know, 90% of VR is built on the Unity platform. And they showed me such cool things. I said, I got to do this. Like, I need to learn more. So they said, get an Oculus Go, which I did. And now I sit in my study and put on the headset and play with these new apps. And I think, you know, when, I, when I'm sort of moving through the body's capillary system and white blood cells are flying by me and I'm ducking, I think, if I had had this in seventh grade, I might have been pre-med. I don't know. You know, it's like, it was just so engaging and so powerful. But I think when you make that shift from innovation to operationalizing and then operationalizing at a scale, that's a different skill set. And I'm not sure that I'm the best at that. I've been lucky to work with some pretty amazing people on my team who are better at it than I am. Yeah, another great leader lesson in terms of knowing where your strong suit is and making sure your team your team complements that. Tony Wagner talks about play and purpose, right? This this combination of of, of really allowing uh, chance for learners, which our schools don't do. They're they're way too regimented. Uh, allowing learners to really have um, th that opportunity to, to kind of luxuriate in an idea or a problem and spend some some time some time in that. Let's let's circle back to this this notion of technology and uh, personalization and community and places of belonging, right? Because I know over the course of this year in podcast episodes, probably some that I'll co-host with some of our students here at Parish, is this idea of what does it really mean to be connected and to belong in the age of technology, right? Is it just more likes and friends on you know Snapchat or Instagram in the kids' uh, sense? Um, and, and even for you and I who are pondering where education goes next, you know, I can customize my mattresses. I can customize my fitness plans. I can customize what I purchase and from whom I can customize how I go about my travel. 
the one thing you really can't customize to your early point about you know where you're going uh, up there in your area is education and your educational plan. And I spent time this summer uh, reading some more Tom Ro Todd Rose and, and his book, uh, Dark Horse, and, and I've read End of Average, as I'm sure you probably have, and David Epstein's book, Range, another really compelling kind of provocative thought about how are we educators going to continue to rec reconcile learning as communal with what I think is the compelling need to both from an engagement standpoint for students, uh, but, but also just because the, the reality of the modern day and technology enables it, personalizing education. Like, how do those two live together, right? How do we reconcile that? What are your thoughts on, you know, where technology will take us and the balance between communities of learning and, and belonging and personalized learning experiences? Yep. So it's, it's a great question. And it's, it's, a, it's a complicated one in that these two things that exist in a kind of synergy and tension at the same time. And I do think sometimes there's a false uh, uh, sort of dichotomy that's created that the more personal is somehow more autonomous. And I don't think that's the right framing of the question. In fact, I am a better member of my community when I am the best version of myself. So if I am, uh, if I'm, gay and I can't be out, I'm not fully in my community, I'm not fully fulfilled by my community, right? If I uh, struggle with depression and I can't share that, uh, my community can't support me and I can't be in it in the same full way. So when I think about things that make people better, education, medicine, right? If I can't be, so I think of personalized medicine, where our precision medicine, hopefully we'll get to personalized medicine. I want the healthiest person possible to be engaged in the community. So I'm better for the community when I am better, period. And that's how I think about education. Um, as we think about, okay, if that's happening, then what sort of the ties of bond if we're not having a – there's something really powerful about a common experience. So it's, I think you need to think really hard about, even as we're personalizing, even as we're customizing education, what are the ways that we can do that? And then what are the ways that we're always balancing it with the bonding common experience? Right. So everybody who's been through, you know, if you've been through boot camp together, you're always going to be with those, those guys are always going to be right. If, if, if you've worked for an organization that's gone through a really hard, difficult time, some ways those are incredible bonding experiences. You've been through a baptism, we'll say, you know, a baptism of fire as a team, that kind of thing. So I do think there are lots of ways we can do that. Um, I just think it's mindful about structure as opposed to the substance, right? It's like, what are the structures you create in a reinforced community? So if I'm racing ahead, in my peer group, and I'm the best math kid student in class, put me to work with the kids who aren't as strong. Mm -hmm. like, pull me back into the structure of the community where I get to shine, where they get to sort of leverage how I've raced ahead, because that's a good thing that you've optimized my math skills, but I also get to give back in some portion, right? And I matter differently in that mix. Yeah, um, I really appreciate that notion of it not being a binary. It, you know, it, we've been doing work with the Center for Creative Leadership out of Greensboro on polarities, really how you leverage the yeah. upside of, of both elements. So change and stability, for example, is where we've spent a lot of our time. But in, in your instance, it would be community and personalization. So we're at Parrish saying, uh, in, in the spirit of, of your colleague, Michael Crow at Arizona State, who's, who's seeking to create the new American university, right, that the, that the new independent school uh, model can feature both personalization through competency-based education and 
through our uh, inclusive Episcopal identity, a communal place where we have daily chapel, for example, right? Where everybody's exactly. together, right? To be, to be, exactly. I completely concur with you that this is, uh, this is head scratchingly challenging for, for us to try to think about how to leverage uh, the, the polarities of community and belonging. Uh, but I think, um, I think an educational model uh, that remains static and it's uh, what Todd Rose calls the sort of age of standardization, right? This, this notion of everybody getting the same thing at the same time is going to be increasingly an, uh, anachronistic uh, within the next decade to decade and a half. Like it, the, the technology is just running so far out ahead of us at this point. Yeah, I almost feel David, that when you have everyone having that more common experience, common experience or versions of that, that can descend into tribalism. We are all so much the same that we are now tribal versus the diversity of a community like New York City, which has, you know, the sort of enormous diversity and cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism that's, that's actually energizing, right? I mean, I know it has its downsides, but it can be energizing. It can be more powerful. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we have to be thoughtful about that polarity in more complex ways than we, are sometimes, some, than we sometimes frame the questions. So in bringing things to a close, I want to talk a little bit, given your expertise uh, and, and sort of deep familiarity with the, with the world of higher education, you know, as to what lies ahead. In other words, is Southern New Hampshire University sort of the tip of the iceberg? Or are you going to be a niche specialty in the future? Because I'm telling families here, we've changed our college counseling office, for example, to the Center for uh, College and Life Planning. Like we are telling our uh, pre-K students who graduate from here in 2034, we're telling their parents the pathways after parish are going to open up more broadly for you. You'll be readily prepared for a brick and mortar college experience for eight, from 18 to 22 if that's what you desire for your family. And I still think a large preponderance of our 115 uh, seniors each year are going to probably go that route. But I am very bullish on the uh, uh, pathways around credentialing and certification, either coming from corporations, coming yep. from institutions like yours, they can offer uh, different cadences and pathways that don't require brick and mortar stay, uh, just a variety of uh, elements that uh, might be out there. What's your sense, are you bullish or bearish on that? Have you sort of commanded a market and it's gonna be you and, and basically a handful of others, but otherwise the model's gonna stay pretty much the same or do you see a, a widening and broadening of the array of post high school experiences for graduates? Oh, I think absolutely the latter. I think we often talk about the future learning higher ed ecosystem. Sometimes you hear people use the frame pla uh, phrase platform for it, the word platform. But the idea I think is that in Traditional institutions will still be important, and traditional degrees will still be important, maybe even the most important milestones. But I would predict that we will see an ecosystem that has a much larger number and range of providers of education and what counts for education. And I think we will see a much wider range and granularity of credentials. So we'll be increasingly comfortable with the idea of badges and micro-credentials and micro-masters and nano-degrees, right? And Yes, it's messy right now because we're still working out the taxonomy and we're still working out the nomenclature. And anytime you go through a major transition, transformation, those are kind of the first two things you got to sort out, right? What, what did sort of, you know, what, what did God do? We start name all the animals, right? <laughs> in Genesis, you got to start make order of the chaos. So we're still in that process, but it's happening. It's proliferating. And I think I often say to our people, we have to build a platform that is as comfortable and can accommodate a 10th grader working on her associate's degree 
as a 65-year-old formerly incarcerated adult coming back for his high school degree and everything in between. And if you think about that phrase I used earlier, just the right learning at just the right time in just the right way, that argues for a much more diversity of approach and delivery than what we see in today's higher ed system. Yeah, we, we, call, we call that somewhat inelegantly here the Goldilocks zone. You know, just that the kids are plugged into work that's not too hot and not too cold, because for us, it's all about engagement, right? It, yeah. If you've got engagement of employees, you've got a healthy work culture. If you've got engagement of learner, uh, you have folks that are not just going through the actions, they're actually invested deeply in the work, and it sticks. Like, it's just a stickier learning uh, experience. But I appreciate that recognition, I think, of the broadening bandwidth of, of uh of post uh, high school um, opportunities, and to me, the the there there are really two um, two levers that I would cite most um, significantly. The first, the value proposition. You know that twenty thirty four graduate is going to be paying well over seventy thousand dollars. Some would say a year. Some would say you know three hundred fifty thousand for a four year private college experience. And I'm not sure every eighteen year old is prepared to go and leverage that for value. Secondly, you know that. The, the reality is, as you, as you look at um, um, the, the landscape, once employers give the uh, credential, micro-credential, as much sway as they do the degree as a, as a sort of signatory of preparedness, once that we pass that tipping point, that I think would really open up the opportunities. And the last survey I read from this summer in a, in a report on employment was about 50-50, like 50% of employers saying, I value the degree more. Another 50% saying, I value the skills and competencies that I can see through right. whatever digital right. portfolio you provide for me. So if that yeah. movement trend keeps going, where employers are like, look, I don't care what degree this person has, they are not ready to come work for me, but I can see what this individual can do, right, through their performance uh, designations. And you've just done that with your recent uh, merger from last year with LGMR. I mean, that's that's, I think, where we could really see a, a, an acceleration of the legitimacy of the non-brick-and-mortar uh, experiences uh, for, for post-high school. For sure. And I think the degree has been a faulty signal to the workforce for a long time. Everyone has somebody with a four-year degree that doesn't write very well. They can't do math, right? So we're not the reliable signal that we used to be 40 years ago. Um, the other thing is that People, you know, we're not producing the graduates with the right skills that many employers need. So they're in that act of desperation. They're willing to look past the degree to other things. And competencies are very powerful because rather than shining on a, a light on what you know, where the employer has to infer what you can do, we're actually saying, no, this is what they can actually do. <laughs> and from that, you can infer what they had to learn in order to do it. Um, and I think that's super powerful. And we're seeing, you know, I think, I mean, competencies are the future. We went, we went to outcomes Outcomes was a movement towards competencies, and now we're going to the next step. And we see that at K-12, and we see it in higher ed as well. So we're going to keep working, as your team is, hard at articulating the competencies in our fairly traditional academic disciplines now. Those competencies really allow our students to provide evidentiary examples yep. of their learning rather than simply uh, rote yep. regurgitation of material. We're going to keep doing that because we think that's going to, again, go uh, as – Wayne Gretzky said, go where the, where, the, where the puck is headed, not where, you know, not where it is at the moment. Yeah. So, uh, you know, appreciate that affirmation. And we'll continue to, uh, to learn from you and, and others from afar. So you've got a beautiful STEM building that's making its uh, way up out of the earth up there in Manchester. Good luck uh, with that and with your continued uh, 
innovative um, uh, endeavors up at Southern New Hampshire University. Uh, I'm an admirer and appreciate the, uh, the learning the learning you compel uh, in in uh, in my space as a as a pre collegiate educator. Well, I'd love to come visit sometime. It sounds like you're doing marvelous work. I look forward to it. If you come to Dallas, uh, please please stop by and come to visit. Thank you, Dr. LeBlanc. That's a well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. Bye bye. Well, keep up the good work. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In upcoming episodes, we will begin to explore how one feels a deep sense of physical and emotional security when in a community belonging. As such, we will be joined by Bodie Sarton, Parish's first and new Director of Community Safety. And we'll talk about our quest to make our Midway and Hillcrest campuses safe for our constituents. Look forward to having you back in the next episode of From My Angle.